Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We will continue working through this segment of Scripture as it relates to the relationship between the husband and the wife and the designated roles that are given by God in that context. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for all the blessings that you've bestowed upon us, and we praise you for your mercy and your grace and uh, your gentleness towards us. Pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for our sins, that you would uh, cause us to be attentive to your word and to take heed to your counsel. Uh, we pray, pray, Lord, that you would Keep us and preserve us as your people. Cause us to be salt and light in an age of darkness and to be peacemakers, those who proclaim the gospel and point people to Christ. Thank you for your word and the sufficiency of it and the certainty of it and the clarity of it. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for our salvation. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Colossians has, of course, become very familiar to us all. Um, we are working our way through chapter 3, and we have kind of uh, parked the bus, if you will, in verses 18 and 19, and we've been working on verse 18. I wanted to take the time to make certain that we are understanding and comprehending what it is the Lord has for us here. We've not really had an occasion while well, I've been the pastor to, to really speak to the issue of the relationship between a husband and a wife, and so I wanted to make certain that we were doing that, and taking the good foundation that we have in verse 18 and exploring what other passages in Scripture speak to this particular issue. And so Paul here writing in chapter 3 is, is really emphasizing the idea of a new creational lifestyle, that the redeemed of Christ, because of our union with Christ, act and behave differently than the world does, and that he has a particular order it is the natural order, the natural way that he intended things to be. I want you to keep that in mind. We are not looking at something that deviates or, is or, or should be considered different. This is what is normative. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is what God created. This is what God ordained. Now, the world has told you otherwise, and unfortunately, those ideas have crept into the church in the form of a lot of different things, feminism, liberalism, egalitarianism, a lot of isms that have taken away from what God had ordained. We understand that Paul would condemn uh, in Romans chapter 1 and speak very uh, harshly towards those who have deviated from God's natural order of things. And so when we want to think about what is right and what is correct and what is proper, the idea is found in God's Word. And it's not merely a suggestion. He is the Creator, and so He has the prerogative as such to do as He deems necessary and appropriate, which is what He has done. And so, building upon that idea, Paul then in Colossians chapter 3 begins to set forth what is the normative standards for Christian behavior. The predicate for this is found in, in verse 12, which really recaptures in many ways 
some of the foundational doctrines that we talked about in the first two chapters. Paul in Colossians 1 and 2 sets forth a lot of important doctrinal principles that we need to make certain that we understand. The indicatives, the, the idea that um, there are certain foundational truths that our conduct is built upon. And so beginning in chapter 3 and in part in chapter 2, there are imperatives that Paul begins to set forth. So we're looking at chapter 3, verse 12. Let's go back and read these passages, and, and we'll, begin to, we'll continue to look at uh, verse 18 in part and maybe move into verse 19 today as well. Verse 12, so, and that so is important. Um, I know we don't like it when our children say so, but um, this particular so is very important because the so reaches back into all of the things that we have been looking at. And so because of that, because of what we have been taught, because of what we understand, and in particular, the idea that's communicated in chapter 3 of a new nature in Christ, being clothed in that new nature, means that we can now do things that are different from what we did when we didn't have the new nature, when we were in the old man. And so there's a distinction that's important, and that means Christians live, act, and think differently. So, as those who have been chosen of God, so the consequence of our election is that there is a change in behavior, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father." Verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So we've been looking at verse 18, and we've been understanding the significance of it. We've unpackaged the idea and the biblical meaning of submission. It's not a word that we need to run away from or shy away from. It's biblical. It's something that's there, and it's something that needs to be understood biblically. In order to do that, what we have done then is to reach back into the foundation, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, to make certain that we're comprehending what it is that God ordained in terms of the relationship between a man and a woman. Where does the idea come from for submission? Did Paul just make it up? Is it something that he just pulled out of a hat and he thought would be appropriate for the Colossian church? He saw a particular problem. He decided this would be good for them and created it out of whole cloth. No, not at all. What we have found and what we understand is that Paul is building upon what was taught and what God communicated to us in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And so we've been taking the time to look at that. And in particular, we've been looking at passages from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. So let's go back to Genesis. Always going, it's always good to go back to the beginning. And we're going to continue today to, to use Genesis and, and to wrap up this particular dynamic or aspect of our, of our study of this issue. Significantly, as we know, 
there are frequent references made to the creative order, to the creative mandate. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that in, the, in terms of Scripture, we, it builds upon itself. And so Paul does not create out, create out of whole cloth the idea of submission in, in verse 18. He is simply recapturing and communicating again the very principles that God ordained in the beginning. So last week we considered chapter 3 and the impact of the fall on the relationship between the husband and the wife and what ultimately would be referred to as perhaps the battle of the sexes that has raged throughout the ages. And so we understood then from that that there was a deception that took place, that Eve was deceived by the serpent, that there was a penalty and a consequence for that, and that there was a consequence to Adam as well. Um, And we talked about the ideas that were attendant with that, and in particular considered um, the implications of that, beginning with verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. As a consequence of the fall, we find then that there was something that happened with regard to both the function and the role of the man and the woman within their relationship. In verse 16, it states this, to the woman, he said, this is God speaking, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because if you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And so today what I want to do is conclude this analysis of chapter 3 by looking at, importantly, what's communicated in verse 20 and 21, because what we ultimately see then is that the consequences of the fall are rectified by the gospel. And this is very important. And as we look at our marriages and we look at the relationship between a husband and a wife, the answer to the tensions and issues that can arise within a marriage is always going to be resolved by and, and, and filtered through the great of the gospel. We must make certain that we understand that. We live out our lives in the context of the reality of the presence of the gospel, understanding what it is and what it means in terms of transforming us. And so, with respect to how a husband and a wife treat each other within the marriage, if they are both believers, then their marriage is ultimately driven by the gospel. They understand that their new creation in Christ Jesus, that the principles that are taught in Scripture about what Christians do ought to be demonstrated first and foremost within the relationship that they have. It's interesting to me that, that, that Paul lays out for us in Colossians chapter 3 that the reality of one's conversion is demonstrated in the body of Christ through the principles of forbearance and forgiveness and, and, and that bond of love, the, that picture of that cloak of love that encapsulates the body of Christ and that these behaviors are 
part and parcel of the new nature that you have been given. Keep this in mind, friends. You are new creation in Jesus Christ. As a result of that, you then act and behave differently. That behavior, importantly, relates back to what God originally intended our behavior ought to be like. Those things that are communicated to us in Colossians are simply those things that God expected his new creation to experience and demonstrate prior to the fall. Those would have been attendant with the behavior of those who would have been the progeny of Adam had they not fallen. Isn't that significant? We forget that. We think sometimes that what we do and the way we behave and the way we think now is normative, that this is just the way it is, but it's not. It's not going to be like this in heaven. Can I hear amen? Often when I preach um, or when I have the occasion to preach a funeral, one of the points that I emphasize is that there is no sin in heaven. And that's what makes heaven so wonderful. Christ is there, of course, we're, we're, we're in that radiant glory in the context of his person, and there is no sin. There is no sin. And so we need to make certain that we have not become so comfortable in the context of who we are that we just think that our conflicts and our tensions are the norm. They are not. Nor should they be in terms of our marriage. And so we want to make certain that we're, we're, we're grasping that. This new creational life flows over into our relationship with each other. There's an expectation that we're going to forbear, we're going to forgive, we're going to be loving, we're going to be kind, we're going to be patient, we're going to be long-suffering, we're going to be gentle. Think about the fruits of the Spirit in the context of that. Those all apply. And Paul moves from that relationship within the body within the, the, the general sense of relationships with people, to more specifically in terms of the marriage, because it would only make sense that this new creation lifestyle is going to flow into our marriages. And so, going back to what is normal, going back to what is natural, Paul resurrects, if you will, brings back the very principles that are communicated to us in Genesis 1 through 3. That's significant, and I think it's a point that's being lost upon the church today in the context of the debates that we're facing with regard to the role of women within the church, the, the recent influx and explosion of women pastors, and the abrogation of male leadership within the church and in the home. That is not normative. That is not what God intended in his creation. And so our obligation as the redeemed of Christ, those who believe the word of God, is to go back and to make certain and to check our behavior, our ideas, and our attitudes about those things against the word of God. And so as I look at Genesis chapter 3 and I see the consequences of the fall, I then understand that there are going to be certain behaviors and patterns in my life that I'm going to have to be cautious about and attentive to. Last week, we looked at verse 16 and the meaning of it, understanding that there are, there are things that are attendant now with being a wife and a mom that are, that, are, that are impacted by the fall. 
pain associated with childbirth and the complications that can be attendant with that and the struggles of raising children and the disappointments and things along those lines. But importantly, too, this issue of the tension that now would exist as a result of the fall because the fall changes that which was normative. It's impacted by sin that I'm going to have to be alert to the fact that my natural inclination is going to be to fight against that. My natural inclination as a husband is to going to be to abrogate my responsibility as a leader within the home. And that's a massive problem right now for men. And ladies, take heart. The men are going to get it on the chin pretty hard um, shortly. So you'll have much to talk about at home in a gentle, kind, and loving way, <laughs> as I know is what you already are doing Um, from all reports. Some are even, as I noted last week, getting whoopie pies, which I'm, you know, pastor always likes to see the power of the message being played out in the lives of the, 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 the congregation. And so we looked at these passages in Genesis chapter three and understand that there is a consequence, but I don't want to leave us in a conundrum of, okay, is it futile for my, for me then to be engaged in the battle? Am I, is there any hope for us? Is there any way to work through these issues? And the answer to that question is, of course, yes. The answer is found in the gospel. The answer is connected to the gospel. And there's just this remarkable passage. I'm, I'm excited to preach this this morning because perhaps this has not been seen as clearly as it ought to be, but there is hope In this passage, as despondent as it may be, men and women both moving out of verses 17, 18, and 19 are saying to themselves, my goodness, it is hopeless. I don't want to live in this context. I don't want this to be the issue. I don't want this to be the way it is. And and thankfully, God provides us the answer to the issues that are attendant with those passages in verse 20 and 21. Now, it's interesting that up until this point in time, Eve had not been named. According to the passage, we find that she had simply been referred to as woman. As woman. I can recall sometimes my dad saying to my mom, woman. (laughs) And it was fun. In a spiritual sense, yes, I... It was fun for dad. I'm not sure sure if it was fun for mom, but uh, uh, I, I certainly remember it. But nonetheless, Eve, the woman, now receives a name. That's important. The timing of it's important. The significance of it's important. And the meaning of her name is important. And so let's look at this. In verse 20, it says, now, again, we even use this verse from the standpoint of establishing the creative mandate order within the, the home, the relationship between a husband and a wife. We understand that that is what has taken place. God has brought Adam and Eve together. There is a union. There is a joining together. The book, the Bible begins in part with a wedding, a wedding officiated by God himself. He brings these two people together and significantly brings them into this covenant relationship that is ordained by God as being normative. Noting as well, we don't want to forget this because it's being attacked. Marriage in the Bible is between a man and a woman, a biological male and a biological female. And so that's important. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And parents, be very attentive to what your children are being taught because they are being told that that is not the case. 
Be careful about that. Dads, it is your responsibility to be the the protector of the truth, to be the one who protects the family and who establishes the baseline of God's word as the truth within the home. And so when children come home with material, my, my daughters have shared with me, they're both nannies, and they have showed me passages from books that they're Their charges have been given as children from different schools and different resources that completely attack this. And we're talking about children that are three and four years old being told that what God's Word says is not right. So keep that in mind. The marriage, Adam and and Eve are married together as a man and a woman. That's what marriage is for, and that's who it's between. To depart from that is not what? Normal. To depart from that is what? Unnatural. You're allowed to use those words. Words have meaning. And they they have meaning for a reason. So to depart from that would be to do something that is unnatural. Why is it unnatural? Because God ordained it to be otherwise. That is what is natural. How do I determine what is normal? What has God ordained? It's not what the government tells me. It's not what the public school board tells me. It's not what The View tells me or Oprah or, or, or anybody else for that matter. It's what God's Word says. It's what God's Word says. So we understand then that from the context of our, the relationship, we see that it's between the man and the woman. And even in verse 20, the reference is made to the naming of the wife, and this shows the, the prerogative of the man to lead in with the home. The, 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 the natural order as it relates to the man's responsibility in the context of the relationship. This order is not established as a consequence of the fall, but the, it is tainted by the fall, as we see from verses 16 and 17, and, or, or, uh, and 18 and 19. There are those who argue, mainly in the egalitarian camp, that this idea of submission within the context of marriage is a result of the fall, therefore it's not ideal. No, that's not it. Submission has been tainted by the fall. The principle of submission has been tainted by the fall, but it's not the result of the fall. Submission was clearly ordained, and we see again the prerogative of the male in the context of leadership within the home, where in verse 20 it says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve. The naming of the woman as she had been referred to, because she was the mother of all the living. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, now why is this here? Now, you'll notice, too, that it's a separate thought idea. So we're making a transition. We've been dealing with the consequences of the fall. Now in verse 20, we, we see that something happens. There's a, there's a fact event that takes place, and the facts of the Bible are important for us to understand. The facts matter. The facts are incredibly important. And so I need to make certain I'm understanding why it is that, that, that Adam did this and why it took place when it did. So what we find here then is a, a, a response on Adam's part to what God has promised in the proto-gospel that we find in verse 15. Adam is ultimately acting in faith in God's promise, 
with regard to what God said is going to happen in verse 15. Go back to Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now in my Bible, the he is capitalized. And this is why I like the, the language that's used in the NASAB and the, and the capitalization of the personal pronouns for the deity because it gives better context and emphasis in my opinion. I know there's varied ideas on this, but nonetheless, we see this. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So here we have this great picture of the gospel, this proto-gospel, the idea of what Christ is going to do, the one who would come. This is what is in reference, being referenced here. And so Adam hears this. This is amazing. Adam, Adam hears, faith cometh by hearing. That principle is right at the beginning doesn't it? So Adam is going to have to trust in something that he yet cannot fully comprehend, right? Adam is going to believe what God has said. He's got to trust in that. What is faith? Knowledge, assent, and trust, right? That's, those are the components of faith. And so Adam hears what God says. And in the midst of all this, there's a message of hope proclaimed. This is what the gospel always does. It's always the message of hope in the darkest of times. When all seems lost, when all seems to be utterly hopeless, you would think that in any context of any given moment, in any time of human history, this is the darkest of times. Imagine, if you could, the despair. Adam and Eve, they, they've hidden from God. There, there is no communion. There's no fellowship. They're covering themselves up. There's a sense now of shame, not in the context of just being aware of their nakedness, but in the context of their depravity. That is the, that's the symbol that's being communicated. And so in that moment, there is a realization that they're now in the presence of a thrice holy God, and they are not. So they hide, they cover themselves with fig leaves. It's so temporal, so temporary, it can never be adequate. Yet in the face of this, Adam hears the voice of God. And he, it's interesting to me that, that he remembers what God says. And so resting, trusting, hoping, and living in the context of the promise, Adam does something to demonstrate that he believes what God has said in verse 15. He names his wife Eve, the mother of the who? Living. In the face of death, in the face of despair, in the face of desperation in the context of being separated from God, Adam, in a context of faith, pure faith, trusts in God and demonstrates it in the reality of naming his wife. This is beautiful. This is powerful. We see the message of the gospel already is providing a way of salvation. Is providing a resolution to the tension and the problems and the death attendant with sin in the presence of a thrice holy God. God had every right to kill them on the spot. Did he not? If you do this, you shall surely die. The consequence could have been immediate death. But it wasn't. Instead, he provides another way. They will still die physically. They have died spiritually as well. 
That is the consequence of the, of the fall. Spiritual death, that's immediate. Physical death would come. And we know that. The Bible tells us. Importantly, the facts matter. What did Adam do some 700 years later, or nine, whatever it was? What happened to Adam? He died. What happened to Eve? He died. What happened to Adam's children? What? They died. What's happened to everybody who's lived since Adam? They died or they will die, right? Except for one. Who? Christ. He came back from the dead. So here we have this beautiful picture again of what God does for us. And so we see then that, that in response then, this is so beautiful. Think about this. So, so Adam's response of faith in what God has promised results then in God doing something that had not yet been done up to that point in time. What? He kills something else in order to cover them. Oh, mind blown, right? You, you already begin to see the whole picture of atonement. The whole picture of a necessary sacrifice now, now think about this for a minute. Think, think for a minute. What did, what did God do? He, he couldn't kill another person because there weren't any. He didn't kill another. There's no one else wandering around the garden. Hey, hey, Jim, come over here for a minute. There's no human sacrifice. There's nothing. No, he kills an, Adam, he kills an, an animal as a type. Those types are important throughout all of Scripture because those types are going to continue. They're going to be perpetuated throughout Scripture until the second Adam comes who will die for the sins of the first Adam and all their progeny because he can, because he is a man. This is why that on Golgotha, God didn't kill just a big giant sheep or a lot of cows. Christ died. Christ was killed. Jesus, the man, died for your sin. So what I have here then in this picture, in terms of, 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 of understanding the significance of the gospel, is the painting of that amazing picture of atonement. God providing a way through something else other than us, other than Adam and Eve. This animal, whatever it was, we don't know what it was, was killed. And, the, and, the, and the God fashioned from that clothing to cover what? The sinfulness, the nakedness is the symbolic reference to the idea of fallenness and depravity, they had to have a covering. God provided the covering. The gospel is that picture. And so what happens then is we see Adam acting in faith. He trusts God. This is amazing. He trusts God, names his wife Eve, who is the mother of all the living, and in response to that, God clothes them. It's not what happens in our salvation. We're born again. We, we see, so here, so again, think about this. The gospel is given in 315. 16, 17, 18, 19 show the desperate state of mankind. 
that life is no longer going to be what it was in the context of God's creator order within the garden. Sin is now a problem. So the gospel is shown, sin is demonstrated in the context of the consequences of the fall. There has to be a resolution to the sin. Adam hears the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. In response, he demonstrates it by the way he names his wife. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to believe what you've said about my wife. I'm going to believe your promises that one will come who will rectify the problems that have been as a result of my behavior. And I'm going to believe in what you have said. Boom. They're clothed. God kills another animal, he brings it, he, he fashions it, and he, he clothes them with it and covers them. Now, the, the relationship between God and man in the context of him being able to remain in the garden, of course, is changed and altered. They, that garden was created for, uh, for perfection in the context of holiness and, and relationship on the basis of that. That ended, and so man is sent out. Yet God still allows there to be communion. There's, there's an amazing discussion that occurs relative then to how Adam would have worshipped after the fall outside of the garden. And many believe it was reflective of what God had done, the perpetuation of the sacrifices that Adam would have then made that are then communicated throughout the balance of Scripture in the Old Testament culminating in the death of Christ. This is just a beautiful picture for us. Adam and Eve believed this promise with true faith, and they were justified. They were justified. We see the same principle applied with Abraham, do we not? Abraham's told something that's just simply imponderable. It's inconceivable. Yet he believes God. Paul tells us in Romans that it was counted to him as righteousness, not that his act was righteous, but that his faith in something that he could not fully comprehend or, or fully capture was, was what was required in the context of a faith that makes assent and consent and trust and is based upon knowledge that God will do what he promises. That's faith. That's why we want to make certain that we're talking to people about that in the right way. Not faithing in your faithfulness, God didn't tell Adam, you know what, Adam, here's what I want you to do. Um, let's, let's make this up here in terms of, of, of what we need to do now. You need to be super good. Um, if you're really good and, and you faith in that faithfulness, then I'm going to take care of you. Is that what he says? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. He takes the action. He communicates a truth there is a trust in the truth, and God clothes and covers the sin. What a beautiful picture for us. What a beautiful demonstration of God's saving power. It's interesting, too, that Adam's naming of Eve speaks to life and not death. It's the hope, not the curse. Do you see how that changes? All of a sudden, in the face of what is clearly a curse in the context of the relationship between God and man and, and, and Adam and Eve themselves, the emphasis in verses 20 and 21 is not on the, on the curse, but it's rather in the hope. The hope that's in the gospel. 
The hope that then permeates the balance of Scripture. As we've been talking about in Sunday school, the book of Revelation is a book of hope because it causes me to focus on Jesus Christ. The fact that He is in charge and He is in control and I can rest in everything that He is doing. As we know, ultimately, Christ will come from Eve. All of mankind's lineage can be traced back. That continues and perpetuates itself through. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about the list of names in the Bible. They're important. They're there for a reason. And it can all be traced back and connected. She now is the giver of life. And in that life and in that moment of hope, there is trust that God's promise in verse 15 will be fulfilled in a Savior. And we know that does come to pass in Jesus Christ. What a, what a remarkable and beautiful picture this is for us. Adam could have been despondent. He could have been despairing. This is a good lesson for us. As soon as Adam had escaped the present death by God's grace... He celebrated that divine, divine benefit which beyond all expectation he had received in the name he gave his wife. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is for us. And so, now, as we see this and we understand it, we then understand that the gospel is always powerful and effective and appropriate. And in our marriages too, the same can be applied. I mean, Adam, we, verses 20 and 21 could have been the, big, the first big marital fight of the, century, of the ages. I mean, imagine, if you will. I mean, Adam had already laid the groundwork for it. It's the woman you gave me. But, but no, he, and again, this for us is important. Focusing on what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and how he resolves these things in us, and, and, and how the gospel changes us and transforms us, is so important to be remembered in terms of our marriages. And so, ladies, as you step into verse 18, you need to remember the promise and the hope that's contained within the gospel, even in the context of, of the naming of Eve, the promise that's contained there. Men, we need to remember who we are in terms of our leadership and responsibilities and the fact that we look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and in confidence go forth as he has ordained us to do. This is just a remarkable passage for us. And, and then what it also does for us, too, in terms of understanding the beginning is that it allows us then to deal with what we're being told today based upon the truth and not the sinful mindset of mankind. And this is where the church is really falling right now. I am shocked. I am shocked. I, I, I mean, I shouldn't be anymore, but every week I continue to see men who are involved in evangelicalism giving ground on critical issues relative to those things that, that relate back to the beginning. This issue of, of homosexuality, uh, gay Christianity, all of these things are a result of the beginning being rejected. This is never taught. It's rarely taught in churches. The importance of, of these 
uh, verses, um, it, it's hard to emphasize how much, how, how important they truly are. They are so very, very important for us to know. The idea of verse 21 is the idea of this clothing picture that's painted by Paul in Colossians 3.10. The ideas of submission and the relationship between a husband and wife are found in the very beginning of the Bible. You need to know the book, and we need to know the promises that it contains, and we need to rest in the finished work of Christ. You know, it's interesting. We have the full story. Adam didn't. Listen, look at that, look at that. For verse 15. That short paragraph. Adam believed it. Adam believed it. You and I have the full unfolding of of the historical redemptive narrative of Scripture. The Bible talks about those who are without excuse. Who do you think you are in that context? I didn't know. I didn't understand. No, it's all there. It's all there. Well, I'm going to leave it off there. We're going to pick up next week and continue with this. I have a few concluding comments about verse 18. I wanted to take the time, though, to, 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 to get to the hope to get to the message of hope that's found here in this important passage. There could be so much more said about it. Um, And I hope that you rejoice in the resolution of the apparent tension in the finished work of Christ, even in the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for this message of hope. Thank you for this wonderful picture of faith and trust and something that cannot yet be fully comprehended by them. But for us, we know the story. So, Lord, may our faith be vibrant and and trusting, and uh, may we act accordingly in terms of what we do know. May it give us a burden for the lost and, 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 and a heart that wants to speak to people about the finished work of Christ. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time of fellowship. Thank you for the people who've labored diligently to make it a nice day for us. Thank you for the food that has been prepared. We ask your blessing upon it. Bless our time of fellowship as well and our time together as the redeemed of Christ. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, um, if you will, um, that would be great. And if you're a visitor, you're welcome to stay. Uh, We'd love to get to know you. Um, The food is good, and uh, I, I think you'll enjoy the time here. So you can make your way back, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.